Welcome to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. Um, in this episode, I will be looking at some of Lovecraft's uh, non-fiction writing uh, dealing with this First World War. And I'm going to look at an episode a little bit later where I'm going to look at his writings about race. And these really sort of overlap, so I, I, I kind of want to join these together. We'll, and you can kind of think of this as a mini-series where... One, maybe I'll focus a little bit more on the war, the other a little bit on race, but really these are overlapping themes in this time of Lovecraft's thinking because, as we've talked about several times already, uh, here Lovecraft tended to see World War I as a, as a racial civil war among the Teutonic race and, and therefore a great catastrophe and misfortune. But it also, he also has this kind of Anglo-American kind of fetishization, this... Uh, nostalgia for the United States or, or for the America and England being kind of one civilization, right? And in that sense, he certainly felt a solidarity with Great Britain in the war and a, a kind of an alliance with them, and he wanted to serve in the war. He has this kind of anti-pacifism too, so he's a bit conflicted about this. Now, his larger kind of racial politics are one thing. Um, this episode, I think I'm going to say a little bit more about his writings that really speak to this this kind of Anglo-American solidarity. So if you want some of these writings, uh, most of this stuff I'm going to look at today was published in amateur journalism, particularly the conservative, something he wrote for quite a lot during World War I. He wrote a lot of little articles for it. Um, maybe a few other publications will show up here. But that's the where these writings appear. And you can find quite a lot of these writings on, online at... Uh, H.P. Lovecraft Writings website. There's a website that has basically all his writings in kind of HTML form. And you kind of got to cut and paste or to print it out in printer-friendly format. But, you know, it's, it's available for you without too much digging around. I'm not going to, I don't have everything he wrote in amateur journalism. I'm sure they're available, but there's, there's a limit to how deep I'm going to dig into this, this uh, rabbit hole. I, I think it's, I'm looking at it enough to get us the, the overall picture. But if, if you're listening to this and you, there's a great article, there's a great um, piece he wrote that you think is really important for this topic, let me know and I'll, I'll make an amendment to this episode or something like that um, later on. So some of the articles I'm going to talk about here, I'm going to talk about in a later episode about race as well, just because they go together pretty well. Um, so the first one I want to look at is called The Crime of the Century. This was published in 1915 in The Conservative. And I'll have more to say about this, particularly with race, but I, you know, this is an article about his vision of what the war really is. Now, there is something really kind of uh, rather proto-fascist about Lovecraft's view. It's, I talked about this with his letters a little bit, because it's, I mean, these are basically the same ideas in different formats, right? In his letters or in his amateur journalism or in some cases in his stories. Um, but especially in his nonfiction writing and his letters, you see this kind of proto-fascist idea. And maybe when I do race, I may make a more systematic case for this. Not that Lovecraft was a fascist or he condemned fascism many times as kind of a dead end. And he certainly his ideas change over time. And he's writing at this time before fascism is really a thing. So when we study kind of the history of the ideas that lead into fascist thought, you know, Lovecraft on some of those tracks. That's really the argument when I say he's proto-fascist. It's, it's that some of his ideas are on those tracks that, that lead to a very coherent 
uh, well, I, fascism is kind of incoherent as a philosophy, but, but, a, but a clear set of ideas that we can now call fascism. Okay, so this is what he writes in this article at the beginning. Quote, the present European war occurring as it does in an age of hysterical sentimentality and unsound political doctrines has called forth from the sympathizers of each set of belligerents an unexampled torrent of indiscriminate denunciation. The infeminine idealist, half awakened from his rosette vision of universal brotherhood, shrieks at the mutual slaughter of his fellow man, or singles out individual acts of cruelty or treachery as the objects of his well-meaning rage, while the erratic socialist, saturated with false notions of equality and democracy, raves unendingly against cruel systems of government, which sacrifice the peaceful peasantry to the greed and ambition of their warlike masters. But, though the somber philosopher perceives in war a phenomenon eminently natural and absolutely inevitable, though he realizes that the masses of mankind must remain subject to his will of a dominant aristocracy so long as the present structure of the human brain endures, he can nonetheless find in the colossal conflict an amp cause for the deepest rage and the gravest apprehension. End quote. So a lot to unpack there. Um, certainly we have a lot of these ideas that will be central to fascism, like a criticism of the Enlightenment, a kind of embrace of, of vitality and war. Um, later on, there's going to be racial stuff in this article, too. Um, kind of the rejection of democracy, the rejection of enlightenment values of equality and human rights, rejection of socialism, right? Um, uh, criticism, kind of the socialist arguments against the war, right? But he says, now, the war is bad not for any of those reasons. The war is bad because it's ultimately what he calls a violation of race, and he says, further, furthermore, that civilization is resting on two pillars. And the two pillars are two, two halves of the Teutonic stock, um, the Teutonic race, England and Germany. And he throws in Austria, Scandinavia, Switzerland, Holland, Belgium as part of that, but kind of lesser pillars, I suppose. And that is, of course, the two main belligerents in his view. He almost never talks about France in the context of World War I. He doesn't really think much of it, even though the war is being fought in France. France lost, I think, even more men than Britain did in the war, almost as many as Germany lost. But he, he just sort of ignores France, and France doesn't fit easily into his thesis. He mentions once in a while Latin civilizations, just in passing. But he, he seems to think like Italy and France are marginal players in the war. But the crime of the century is the is this civil war between the Teutonic race and its view. Um, quote, Englishmen and Germans are brothers descended from the same stern Vodan worshiping ancestors, blessed with the same rugged virtues and fired with the same noble ambitions. In a world of diverse and hostile races, the joint mission of these viral men is one of union and cooperation with their fellow Teutons in defense of civilization against the onslaught of all others. There is work to be done by the Teuton. As a unit, he must, in time to come, crush successively the rising power of Slav and Mongolian, preserving for Europe and America the glorious culture that he has evolved. So um, I'll come back to this article to dig a little bit more into, his, into the racial politics being expressed there. But um, him seeing the war as a tragedy, but not for the reason that most like socialists or leftists saw the war as a tragedy, I think is, is what we take out of that article. And I believe in the episode on Polaris, or maybe the doom that came to Sarnak, I talked about this, this article a little bit there too. So I think you can connect it to some of those stories. All right, next, uh, same year, 1915, uh, the Renaissance of Manhood. 
And this is him railing against against pacifism. He writes, after the degrading debauch of craven pacifism through which our sodden and feminized public has lately floundered, a slight sense of shame seems to be appearing. And the outcries of peace at any price maniacs are less violent than they were a few months ago. Military training for business and professional men has been provided at Plattsburgh, New York, and the high schools of Providence, Rhode Island, have established, and despite the wail of unwarlike, efficient courses in martial instruction and drilling. Uh, why, sorry, I, I kind of read that wrong. And despite the wails of the unwarlike, efficient courses in martial instruction and drilling, um, why any sane being can, be, can believe in the possibility of universal peace is more than the conservative can fathom. The essential pugnacity and treachery of mankind is only too evident, and that every nation, even though pledged, would actually abolish means of warfare is absolutely unthinkable. Should the entire civilized world agree to disarm, one or more nations would adultly retain secret armament, armaments and at the proper time take advantage of the more altruistic and less astute contemporaries in a wild career of conquest against unarmed victims. Now, there's actually a, a decent argument against pacifism here. I mean, I'm, I'm not a pacifist myself. I think extreme pacifism, you know, actually leads to oppression. And he's right about that, right? But I, I think it's a bit of a straw man argument. You know, the people, it's, it's a big difference to be against having a military and being opposed to a war that's being fought for no reason. I mean, Lovecraft can't really, at least in the stuff I've reread here, come up with a good reason for the wars being fought. The fact that it's being fought is somehow some reason to fight it. And, you know, whether it's solidarity with England, you know, or a broader racial war. And, and that's why I do think he's kind of flirting dangerously with ideas that will be associated with fascism. This idea of war as an end, as an end in itself, not as with something with clear goals, right? Whether it's running the revolution or liberating people or whatever. You know, he doesn't want to say what war is about. You know, so I, I think it's a bit of a straw man here to say, you know, there's a, there's a lot of room between total pacifism that you just allow your neighbor to roll the tanks in and, and smash you and to not fight in imperialist conflicts. But, you know, it's Lovecraft. Now, he does say something interesting here, which uh, essentially boiling down to there's no contradiction between a country having like this martial character and also being philosophical and literary and artistic. You know, Lovecraft seems to value the martial, especially a lot. We talked in some of his letters. He's kind of imagined himself almost like a Conan-like figure. Uh, you know, so he can appreciate the martial. And at the same time, he, he very much values civilization and art and culture. And, you know, he's, so he's saying war, does, it's not an either or. And I, I think he's right about that, certainly. Um, Quote, aversion to just war can arise from four causes. So what are, I mean, he, doesn't, he never gets to explain why World War I is a just war. At least not here. But one is, um, here are the four reasons someone might be a pacifist in his view. Physical cowardice engendered by long years of peace. So basically, sitting on the couch not fighting enough wars will make you have an aversion to war. Second, hysterical idealism produced from incomplete training in pure science. So 
the more scientific you are, the more you'll accept war as an inevitability and a good, I guess he's saying here. Um, or maybe it gets to this kind of, once you realize, if you study astronomy like me, once you realize how indifferent the universe is to us and how meaningless we are, there's no reason not to just kill each other. It's, it's kind of a stupid thing for him to say here. Uh, incomplete training in pure science creates a hysterical idealism that leads to pacifism, and he thinks that's bad. Um, I, I mean, I guess incomplete training in pure science would create all sorts of bad, bad ideas in people. You know, but I don't know if one of those is necessarily pacifism. Uh, three, mental bias derived from erratic temperamental intellect. So this is, this is just sort of like some kind of psychological problem that people have. And four, the plain obtuse servility, which copies and spreads the opinions of others. So that's just, you just kind of jump onto the pacifism bandwagon, right? He doesn't acknowledge any legitimate reason for pacifism here at all. Now, perhaps um, the second one, this hysterical idealism, he, he comments on a little bit more here. Um, he writes, quite as hysterical... Well, first he says, he kind of picks on Martin Luther. Says Martin Luther said war is unchristian and, you know, so, you know, the Christians are a problem. But quite as he writes this, quite as hysterical is a socialist or anarchist who in his beer barrel declamation screams out that war is only the tool of rulers to aggrandize themselves at the expense of the masses. The Quakers are an organized embodiment of this erratic idealism. So he kind of throws the, the Protestants, the Martin Luther, who actually wasn't against war totally, um, but with the anarchists and socialists and the Quakers. Now, I mean, I'm still with the World War One era socialists and anarchists in saying this was a war for the banks and, and for empire and for national pride. He never makes a positive argument for why this war was worth fighting. And I don't know if people could at the time. He just thinks war itself is somehow natural and inevitable. And he doesn't explain why these people are unscientific because he, he connects in his original claim, hysterical idealism produced from an incomplete training in pure science. So if you're trained in science, you can't be a socialist or anarchist or a Quaker or a, 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 a Lutheran. Boy, this guy. Um... And he just kind of goes in some detail about the rest, but there's not much else to explain. Um, then he mentions Theodore Roosevelt's speech of 1915, um, which he says begins the end of the supine and submissiveness and womanish ideals of the part of the majority. Um, and so he kind of has hope from a speech by Teddy Roosevelt that America will come out of its fetish for pacifism. So um, that's, those are two kind of important articles, both written in 1915 that express his, some of his views on, on the war. And now I want to deal with more, especially in 1916, he starts thinking more about the relationship between America and England. And that's kind of what I want to move to. So we got a 1916 article here. I'm not sure where it was published. Maybe it was also the conservative. Uh, called Old England and the Hyphen. So here he's dealing with... Uh, hyphenated identities, which is, I mean, there was a debate at the time with this kind of new wave of immigration, kind of just like now you have this question of assimilation or are we a 
melting pot? Are we uh, America? I mean, is America a melting pot or is America just like a salad bowl and these different identities will remain? This was a debate being had in the early 20th century with the new migrations from Southern and Eastern Europe. And this idea is, are these people going to be hyphenated, meaning they're gonna keep their ethnic identity? They're gonna be Polish Americans, Italian Americans, whatever. Um, or are they just gonna become kind of Americans? And actually, Teddy Roosevelt gave a speech about this. And is this where he mentions that speech? I'm not sure, but somewhere I remember somewhere in these writings, Lovecraft mentions Teddy Roosevelt. And Teddy Roosevelt gave a speech about hyphenated identities, and he was a promoter of this Americanism, um, that kind of for assimilation. But anyways, uh, Lovecraft's article here on the hyphenated identities is important because he, he brings us back to England, and he brings us back to the war um, in various ways. Uh, to, so let's look at this, uh, quote, of the various intellectual or intentional fallacies exhaled like miasmic vapors from the rotting cosmopolitan of vitiated American politics and doubly rife during these days of European conflict, none is more disgusting than that contemptible subterfuge of certain foreign elements whereby the legitimate zeal of the genuine native stock of England's cause is denounced and compared to the unpatriotic disaffection of those working on behalf of England's enemies. The Prussian propagandists and Irish irresponsibles, failing in their clumsy efforts to use the United States as a tool of vengeance upon the mistress of the seas, have seized with ingenious and unexpected eagerness with the current slogan, coined to counteract their own traitorous machinations. They've begun to fling the trite demand, America first, in the face of every American who is unable to share their puerile hatred of the British Empire. So he's pointing out here an element of largely immigrant origin, German-Americans, Irish-Americans, maybe others, who are against the U.S. joining, this is before the U.S. joined the war, so it would have been for isolationism, and therefore turning back on, on the true ally England out of this kind of propaganda of anti-British empire. Um, and he thinks it's kind of ironic they're using this term America first while holding on to these hyphenated ethnic identities. And I'll say in 1916, I think Lovecraft's come up with an argument for why the U.S. should be part of the war, something he was lacking in 1915 when he wrote those other essays. Because in those essays, it's just like pacifism is, 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 is cowardice and stupid. And why wouldn't you want to fight a war? Um, I, I, for one, can think of many reasons uh, not to want to do that. But Lovecraft couldn't at the time. But in 1916, he kind of comes to his thesis here. And here it is. Quote, England, despite the continue contentions of trifling theorists, is not and never will really be a foreign country, nor is the true love of America possible without a corresponding love for the British race and the ideals that created America. The difficulties which caused the severance of the American colonies from the rest of Europe was essentially internal ones that have no moral bearing upon this country's attitude towards the parent land in its relation with alien civilization. End quote. So then he goes on a long thing about the American Revolution. And it's pretty clear that by 1916, Lovecraft viewed the American Revolution as a, a, a temper tantrum by children against a, a loving, caring, beneficent, and, and in many ways superior parent. And that is something he thinks can be repaired and can be restored. And so he does dream of a kind of a restored Anglo-American Atlantic. So... Um, throughout this podcast, throughout this series on Lovecraft, we're going to talk about 
kind of this this the white Atlantic. That's going to be this Anglo-American vision of a of a of a of a transatlantic alliance and common civilization rooted in the stuff Lovecraft's talking about. Is there truth to that? Yeah, there's some truth to that, right? Obviously, the ideas of Locke and and Hume and these people have an influence, and you'd be stupid to not acknowledge the 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 influence of England on the creation of America. But at the same time, you have this immigrant Atlantic. Another thing we're going to look at the, the, these immigrant cultures that are coming in. You have the Black Atlantic, something that's going to be really a major theme, especially when we look at the case of Charles Dexter Ward. And you have kind of what we could call almost a Red Atlantic, not referring to Indians here, although they're kind of relevant from time to time in Lovecraft's work, but those kind of socialistic ideals or those kind of seen through Lovecraft's eyes, those occult traditions that are transported across the seas. Um, but Lovecraft here is zeroing in on that white Atlantic ideal. And it's important both kind of in the history of America, but also I think it's important in kind of the intellectual idea, especially when you think of the rise of American empire and the, you know, America going from being a continental power, focusing on the conquest of the frontier, focusing on its internal contradictions, whether it's slavery or the relationship with Indians, um, to becoming an Atlantic power. Uh, and, the, and the foundation of that's going to be this alliance that is real in 1917, 1918. It's going to be real from 19, pretty much 1939 ever, ever since. Um, so, yeah, um, he goes on quite a lot in this essay on the various ways in which England and America are kind of one and should be one and, and have that foundation for a reunification. The only thing really getting in the way is immigration. Quote, but since alien immigration has far exceeded normal proportions, it is but natural that we have among us an alarmingly vast body of foreigners from various countries who are totally unable to appreciate Anglo-American traditions. It is not still attached to their respective nations. They are at least prone to regard the United States as a sort of spontane spontaneously evolved territory without previous history or ancestry. Forgetting the Saxon inheritance that gave us language, law, and liberty, they speak of America as a composite nation whose civilization is a compound for all existing cultures, a melting pot of mongrelism, wherein it's a crime for a man to know his own grandfather's name. End quote. Uh, so, yeah, we can push aside the hyperbole here. Um, and just acknowledge his distaste for these non-Anglo-Saxon. Um, I mean, even British people who aren't Anglo-Saxon are kind of sidelined here, like the Irish. Um, anything else here? Henry James. He gets a shout-out here. Uh, he likes Henry James because Henry James kind of made himself British um, over time. All right, so next... Also 1916, very much picking on the same themes. It's called Revolutionary Mythology. And this is his take on his, the historiography of the American Revolution. So this article starts, he, he picks on uh, Wilson's Secretary of State, Secretary Baker. Um, he seems not to like him because he's, he's not... I mean, Wilson ran in 1916 on staying out of the war. Um, 
and of course within months the u.s was in the war after he his second term began but he he mentions that a lot of people kind of graft on to the american revolution and i think he's right about that a lot of people socialists anarchists uh conservatives um, african-americans many different groups have their own mythology of the american revolution so he's completely right here to acknowledge that the American Revolution is something that different people and different programs and different ideologies have grafted onto um, with various degrees of success. And, and I think that's a good thing about it. I think like the left can still learn a lot from Thomas Paine and, and embrace him, for instance. Um, and the fact that these people are such godlike figures, they, you know, they, they sort of do get painted with whatever colors the viewers um, sort of have uh, in their head. Um, but here's what he says. He said, this is really what the American Revolution was. Quote, the American Revolution arose from a fatal misunderstanding between the Englishmen at home and upon those on this continent. Neither side can claim in the exclusive sanction of heaven, nor must either side be blackened with impunity of infamy. Saxon fought Saxon, and men always fight men. The record of each army is as cleared or as soiled as that of any other body of embattled human creatures who contend under the best traditions of civilized warfare. That a certain amount of looting, burning, and other irregularities exist on both sides is no cause for surprise or indignation in the view of the student or historian for these views are inseparable from the armed conflict of any sort um so that is he, he basically thinks as a as a civil war among um anglo-saxons and in the same way he sort of talks about world war one as a civil war among the teutonic race of course the anglo-saxons being in his view a subset all right, one more really short article. Um, this was in 1918 called Anglo-Saxondom. And I'll just read the whole thing because it's only four short paragraphs. When the historian of the future shall look back upon the stupendous events of this age, it is likely that he will find, aside from the general defense of civilization, no event of greater magnitude and significance than the new understanding which is daily being cemented between the two political divisions of Anglo-Saxondom. The war has stripped many shams and delusions from the social and political life of this world. And paramount among those is the pernicious fallacy fostered by and for the unthinking immigrant rabble that America's path must lie apart from that of the mother empire. The strongest tie is the domain of mankind. And the only potent source of social unity is the mystic essence compounded of race, language, and culture. A heritage descended from the remote past. This tie no human force can break. Whatever political revolution may by such an agency be affected. It may be temporarily submerged by the base prejudices and passions of the detestable contamination caused by alien blood, but arrives when it must, when overwhelming stress calls out man's deeper emotions and sweeps aside the superficialities of arbitrary modes of thought. Today we know that, as in the beginning, England and America are spiritually one, one undivided rampart of liberty and enlightenment ordained by the fates to defend for humanity the priceless legacy of classical civilization. My question for Lovecraft is, what enlightenment are you talking about? If, 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 I mean, first he's ignoring the French enlightenment, the German enlightenment, whatever, but okay, there was a British enlightenment and it shaped the United States. But what are those values? Those are values of equality, of liberty, of solidarity, values that Lovecraft seems to shun in a lot of his other writings. So, you know, it is what it is, but... I think he's he's kind of having he's having his cake and eating it too here in terms of the enlightenment and and, and you know 
maybe some level he still has enough respect for the Enlightenment, which leads him to kind of shy away from fascism after the war. But certainly a lot of what he wrote in 1815 seems to suggest of a more um, focus more on the will and a rejection of, of equality and progress, which are so key to the Enlightenment thought. And that's why I don't find, I can't really understand his view on war. Uh, and I can't really find much value in it. Because say what you want about the necessity of war and the necessity of self-defense. And those are things I agree with. I, I believe the working class should be increasingly armed. Um, but what? But obviously peace is preferable to war and a better foundation for social progress than war. And I don't see how you can look at the history of the 20th century and see war as a, as a path to some sort of social progress. Um, but anyways, um, I know I promised to talk about his poetry and future, a couple episodes in the future, and I will do that, um, at least his early poetry. But there's one poem that's directly bearing on my, um, my analysis here, and it was written in 1916, January 1916, published in the same month, in the same year, in Posey, a journal that he wrote for. It's called An American to Mother England. And I think we can end on this. And you're not going to be surprised at what it says. England, my England, can the surging sea that lies between us tear my heart from thee? Can distant birth and distant dwelling drain thy ancestral blood that warms the loyal vein? I'll of my fathers hear the filial song of him whose sources but thee belong. World-conquering mother, by thy divine hand was carved from savage wilds my native land. Uh, end quote. That's the opening stanza or so of it. And it goes on quite in this way with uh, the, this praising of England as this cultural homeland for himself. He does talk about the war. He talks about the, the revolution, um, particularly seeing the revolution, as he talked about in his other article, as a, as a kind of a spat between mother and child that should be restored now that the child has reached a certain maturity. He even has some kind of in, embrace of the, of the traditional indigenous religions, which, as far as I know, were not Anglo-Saxon. They were more um, Druidic, more Celtic. But he actually says here... Um, where sea contentment is the peasant's lot, the mystic robe by Druid's wrath possessed, the flowing, flowering fields with fairy castles blessed, and the old manor house, sedate and dark, set in the shadows of the wooded park. Can this be dreaming? Must my eyelids close? Um, yeah, it's not a bad poet poem, but it, it kind of builds off these themes that Lovecraft, were in Lovecraft's head, especially in 1916. So my argument here is that in 1915, Lovecraft seemed to have a, a visceral anti-pacifism and he didn't understand why Americans wouldn't want to join the war, but he didn't have a good reason for that. He did have this idea of a Teutonic civil war, which was bad in the crime of the century, but largely he just had this kind of anti-pacifist agenda and view. By 1916, though, he's kind of figured out in his head that really the purpose of the war is solidarity between the Anglo-Saxon, who amongst the Anglo-Saxon branch of this Teutonic race and the United States has a duty as the child 
to defend the mother and, 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 and walk hand in hand in their struggle. So um, I'm going to pick up on some of these themes in a later episode um, uh, where I'll look focus just on his racial thought from the from that from this time. Um, and maybe I'll, we'll, we'll see these ideas floating around in some of his other articles. Um, but um, so so it's going to be paired with that. But I think next I'm going to to talk about some of his scientific writing and particularly his astronomical writing. So I'm going to read some of his astronomy columns um, and and give you my thoughts about those and at least introduce them to you. Um, we'll see how much there is to analyze. Um, so yeah, that's going to be it for now. So if you have any of your own thoughts about Lovecraft's World War I nonfiction writings, um, let me know. Um, if you have any other articles you think are relevant to this conversation, let me know what they are and I'll try to dig them up and, and maybe comment on them in the future. So uh, if you have any of those comments, send them to me at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Um, but for now, that's going to be all. For, so for next time, let's, let's set aside some of this race stuff and, and talk about Lovecraft's science, science, amateur astronomy and scientific writing. So I will see you then. Thanks for listening.